0: Um, We are continuing our journey in 1 Thessalonians, and we're now starting chapter 5, which is the last chapter in the letter. Uh, Today, we'll be covering verses 1 through 5 of 1 Thessalonians 5. My message is entitled, Encouragement and Warning. I think the reasons for those words will become pretty evident as we go through the text, and trying to come up with something relatively pithy to organize the message. And I called it three encouraging characteristics related to the day of the Lord and its differential impact on believers versus unbelievers. So in Dallas-Fort Worth, as we all know, weather can be very erratic and highly variable. A thunderstorm can roll through Southlake and completely miss Collieville. Colleyville. And that storm that rolls through South Lake can actually do some damage in South Lake, whereas in Colleyville, nothing happens. It may have still been sunny and these differential impacts on of weather in our area, some people may think that they are random or they're just by chance, but obviously we know from the scripture that God's sovereign hand. Controls the weather, you know, by way of example, Jesus calming the storm in Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 4 on the Sea of Galilee. Another event under the sovereign timing and control of God that will also have differential impacts on people, which will not be random or by chance, is the eschatological day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, there's, you know, it's a very uh, rich issue that we can study in the scripture. This definition's in your handout. The day of the Lord refers to the period when God will display his character by judging the world, vindicating the righteous, and establishing his kingdom rule. While the focus is mostly on judgment of the wicked, it also includes blessings for God's people. That's from an essay that Michael Vlock wrote in a book on eschatology that I have, So the question is, what are some characteristics related to the day of the Lord that differ for believers versus unbelievers? And today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 1 through 5, this is a portion of the letter that is meant to provide encouragement to the Thessalonians. And Paul here uses rich imagery that highlights three encouraging characteristics related to the day of the Lord and its differential characteristics. Impacts on believers versus unbelievers. Now, I certainly want to thank Jonathan First Hour for laying a lot of really good groundwork for this message. I think you will hear a lot of similarities in what I say today relative to what Jonathan uh, preached on in First Hour. So keep that in mind as well. No accidents, the Holy Spirit seems to want us to hear this. Now... Before I get into that, just a little bit of context and review, Um, the immediate context for where we are is really picks up in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, where Paul, he was writing to the Thessalonians probably in response to some questions they had about end times, eschatological topics. You know, they were concerned that the dead in Christ that were among them had not risen as if they had missed the rapture. So they were concerned about that. And they were also concerned that not only may they, maybe they had missed the rapture, but they were also concerned that perhaps they were already in the day of the Lord because they were undergoing such heavy persecution from the Jews and Gentiles around them. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, which our brother Lance taught on last week, Paul clarifies some details about the rapture for the Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul turns to another question they had about the day of the Lord and how it should, really how it should shape their conduct. You know, and again, keep in mind that this section on these end time subjects in 1 Thessalonians are meant to provide comfort and encouragement to the Thessalonians. You know, look, for example, and if your Bibles are already open, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 18, after Paul discusses the rapture, he says to conclude that paragraph, therefore, comfort one another with these words, or therefore, encourage one another with these words. And if you drop down to uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, after he talks about the day of the Lord... Paul says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. So these topics, including the day of the Lord, are meant to be an encouragement or a comfort to the Thessalonians. And as counterintuitive as it may be to think about the day of the Lord, a time of God's judgment and God's wrath as being a basis for encouragement, for the Thessalonians and for all of us that is precisely what this section of 1 Thessalonians is driving at. But there's another sort of contextual element to mention here, which is this section of 1 Thessalonians from 4:13 to 5:11 on end-times eschatological topics is wedged between two sections on sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 1 to 12, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 12 to 22. Are blocks of text that discussed application of truth. They're discussing sanctification and topics related to sanctification. So that lends us lends to the idea that even these eschatological uh, portions of the letter are, are meant to be connected up with the subject of sanctification. So let's jump in and read our text for today: First Thessalonians chapter five, verses one through five. <clears throat> Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape." But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of, di- uh, not of night nor of darkness. So more specifically in this section of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is conveying to the Thessalonians some encouragement, some encouraging characteristics related to the day of the Lord. Number one, full knowledge that God's judgment will come. And we'll look at verses 1 and 2 on that. Number two, the inevitability of God's judgment on unbelievers. That is verse 3. And point number three, the certain avoidance of God's judgment for believers. And that will be verses 4 and 5. Now, right before we jump into the text, you may have heard as I was reading, I was really emphasizing some pronouns. So, I want to show you, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and what I did was I color-coded at the recommendation of my wife, thank you, Maria, I color-coded the pronouns, you, you, you yourselves, then they, them, they, and then you, 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 and we. And what we find is that the Pronouns you are second person plurals which is really you all or because we're in Texas y'all and if you're a Spanish speaker ustedes in chap in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians Paul switches to they and then so he changes the pronouns and he's focusing on unbelievers there when, whereas when he says you all writing to the Thessalonians he's referring to the Thessalonians or really all believers And then at the end of verse 5, he transitions to we, and he includes his team, him, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and others, and really to encompass all believers as he transitions the discussion more to application, which our brother Arnold will be covering next week. So stick around for that. But I wanted to point that out because really these pronouns help us break down this little section of 1 Thessalonians into some... Um, Coherent uh, portions. So let's jump in. Encouragement number one, full knowledge that God's judgment will come. And this is where Paul is using you or you all. And under this uh, encouragement, our first subpoint is the setting. The setting. This is just the beginning of verse one. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren. Paul is talking to the Thessalonian Christians. He's talking to the brethren. He's talking to them about two elements of time. It says the times, which is literal, historical, sequential time. And he's also talking about epochs or epochs, however you want to pronounce that. And that's really more uh, a quality of a period of time that's not really a defined period of time. It's kind of like a season or an era. It's, it's more about what happens during a period of time than some particular period of time. And that's what Paul is focused on here. And when Timothy, remember a couple weeks ago when I taught, I mentioned that Timothy was sent back to Thessalonica after they all got ran out of town to check on them and see how the Thessalonians were doing. And in all likelihood, the Thessalonians had some questions that they sent back to Paul with Timothy when he returned. And those questions were these questions about the end times. They said, well, the dead in Christ haven't risen. Have we missed the rapture? What's going on? And they also asked whether they were already in the day of the Lord because they were undergoing such heavy persecution. As I mentioned, Paul addressed the rapture in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and says, no, the dead in Christ will be raised first before those who are alive and remain. And here at the beginning of chapter 5, then, Paul's turning to another question that they had about the end times. And the Thessalonians' questions seem to be more about the when, the when are these things going to happen, when are these events going to happen. And so in response to the Thessalonians' question about the timing of the end times, particularly particularly the day of the Lord, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, as to the times and the epochs, brethren. That's the setting. That's kind of where Paul's going, what he is answering, what he is about to get into. So second sub-point under the first encouragement is the sufficiency, the sufficiency So we'll read on now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well, and that's where we get the sufficiency. Paul says, you don't have anything more that we need to write to you about your question. You already know full well what you need to know. Now, the Thessalonians' questions may have been a little bit like the uh, the disciples asking the Lord Jesus in Acts chapter 1, right before he was going to ascend back to heaven. The disciples asked Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Listen to the response of Jesus. He said to them, it is not... For you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Paul's response is pretty much the same. He says, you already know what you need to know. You have no need of anything to be written to you. I've already covered the rapture. This question about the when in terms of the day of the Lord, we're not, it's not something that's been revealed. You don't need to know it. God has chosen not to reveal it to us. And what we already taught you when we were there in Acts chapter 17, you already have, you know full well what you need to know. You do not need any further revelation about the specific timing of these end times events. The question is, why didn't the Thessalonians, and really by, you know, how many people in here uh, think about when are these things going to happen? You, You know, you don't necessarily get obsessed with it, but it's always a when. Yeah, when is always on our mind. And Paul says, you know what? You don't need to know. And why didn't the Thessalonians need to know the exact timing? Why don't we need to know the exact timing? And Paul says, pick it up in verse 2, for you yourselves know full well. Based on what he had already taught them, and by extension what we have because we have the word of God, we have no need of further revelation about the specific timing. In this reference to full well, it really means you already know precisely and accurately what you need to know. They had specific sufficient, excuse me, sufficient instruction on the end times, and Paul's view of it was apply what you already know. Think about it. If we knew When the rapture was going to come, and we knew when the Lord was going to return, would that impact our walk with the Lord? Would our flesh sort of start nipping at us saying, you know, you can put off your focus on sanctification a little bit longer. The Lord's not coming back yet. Go have a little bit more fun. So in fact, I mean... it it would seem that God has chosen not to reveal the specific timing in a sense to keep us in that mode of anticipation, to keep us in a sense on our toes, that we should be living for the Lord at all times, not just looking ahead and saying, the Lord's coming back in 20 years, so for the next 10 years I can just goof around, even as a believer. We wouldn't want to do that. But by not knowing the timing, God in his infinite wisdom Basically keeping us on our toes, keeping us focused on living godly lives as we anticipate the return of Christ whenever it comes. So the Thessalonians had sufficient knowledge for living godly lives, and they knew what they needed to know about the end times. We have the setting, that thinking about the timing and the eras and the seasons, especially related to eschatological times. And we have the sufficiency. They already knew what they needed to know, they knew it full well. Well, what exactly did they know full well? If we continue on in verse two, our heading, third subpoint under encouragement number one is the suddenness, the suddenness. And it says, <clears throat> For you yourselves know full well. That the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Paul had already taught him that. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And obviously, the thief in the night is a metaphor or an illustration for the coming of the day of the Lord and how it will happen at some level. In this text, if, you're, if we really look at it carefully, it doesn't say the day of the Lord. It's a it's a possibility. The day of the Lord may come. We're not really sure. It says the day of the Lord will come. And it will come just like a thief in the night. Now, before we move on, the day of the Lord is a subject that requires some attention on our part. First and foremost, the day of the Lord is an Old Testament concept and teaching. Paul was a former Pharisee, right? He would have known about the day of the Lord teaching in the Old Testament thoroughly and intimately. And it's, in all likelihood, his use of it here in First Thessalonians is going to closely track what the Old Testament says about the day of the Lord. So I gave you a definition in the handout um, from, from Michael Vlock, but there are so many scriptures in the Old Testament, we're only going to read a few, and I really just want to read them But let's turn to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. I want to look at a few Old Testament passages on the day of the Lord so we can really get a feel for what it is and how it's used here by the Apostle Paul. So Isaiah chapter 13, and we'll pick it up in verse 6. "'Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near.'" It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of Yahweh is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless." I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of Yahweh of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Wow. Turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. You have Daniel and then Hosea and then Joel. Joel chapter 2. Just another passage that references the day of the Lord. There are at least 19 explicit references to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament and many other references to the day and things like that. So it's, it's really a theme that permeates the scripture. Joel chapter 2, will pick it up in verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the habitants of the land tremble, for the day of Yahweh is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations." And drop down in Joel chapter 2, and we'll pick it up in verse 30. Joel chapter 2 and verse 30. Joel continues, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. One more passage, go a little bit further into the Minor Prophets. After Habakkuk and before Haggai, we'll look at Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah chapter 1. and We'll pick it up in verse 14. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. Near is the great day of Yahweh, "...near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of Yahweh. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers." I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against Yahweh and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of Yahweh's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one of all The inhabitants of the earth. These are terrifying passages of scripture if you don't know the Lord. And first and foremost, the the, the highlights of these passages are many. They talk about the nearness of the day, it's coming quickly. They talk about pain and anguish and distress and destruction and fear and terror that will be evident for unbelievers when this day, when this epoch of history arrives. The darkness, the clouds, the thick darkness, the gloom, there will be no light. My little picture in the upper right-hand corner is supposed to be a blood moon. So, you know, picking up on that theme from Joel. It is a unique season in God's history when his judgment on sin will be poured out. Listen for the echoes of those texts as we work back through 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's the day of the Lord. So we're in verse 2 still. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. The thief in the night is also a frequent metaphor, particularly in the New Testament. I just want to look at one example that I think fits him well with our uh, topic today. So please turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. This is in the Olivet Discourse, which is our Lord Jesus, basically his sermon during Passion Week on the end times. So Matthew chapter 24, and we will pick it up in Verse 42. Matthew 24, 42. Our Lord says, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour... When you do not think, he will. So Jesus is emphasizing, in terms of the return of Christ and the day of the Lord, the need for alertness and readiness because we don't know when the Lord will return. And it may not be when we think. And the point is, through those references, the reference to the thief in the night, the illustration of a thief in the night, the day of the Lord is going to come unannounced, I'm I'm back here still. Sorry, I got lost on my outline. The day of the Lord is going to come suddenly. The day of the Lord is going to come unannounced, and it's going to be unexpected. Like, a thief does not put a note on your door and say, I'm going to rob you tomorrow night. I mean, that's the whole illustration of the thief is the surprise, the unexpectedness of it, the unannounced element of it. And similarly, God has not revealed to us the specific time of his return to judge the unbelieving world. So the suddenness is that eschatological judgment and day of the Lord wrath that will come unexpectedly and suddenly just like a thief in the night. Now, from the standpoint of application, there are really two elements of application to the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night. Part one relates to sanctification, our sanctification as believers, and part two relates to evangelism. So in terms of sanctification, our pastor covered it recently in 1 John chapter 3 that, you know, the anticipation of the Lord's return is a purifying hope for us as believers, and we should want to strive to be living a godly life in anticipation whenever it happens of his return. We don't want Jesus to return and see us doing a bunch of bad stuff, right? We don't want Jesus to return and see us living with a bunch of sin that we haven't repented of. We want our lives to be holy and righteous as much as possible and strive for likeness as we await that day for Jesus to come and take us. We should likewise just be motivated to glorify the Lord. The return of Christ is a deterrent to sin, if you will, for the believer, and it's also a motivation to live for him and live for his glory. In terms of evangelism, if you knew that a thief was going to rob your neighbor's house tomorrow night, would you not knock on your neighbor's door and say, hey, you know what? I found out you're going to get robbed tomorrow. You might want to prepare. Similarly, With the day of the Lord and the wrath and judgment that is going to come on unbelievers at that time, we know, we know the truth. Should we not share that with our neighbors and warn them about what's coming and encourage them to repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus before that day? Help your neighbor be prepared. So, that is the suddenness of the day of the Lord. It will come like a thief in the night. And this knowledge is eternally critical for us and critical, really, for our unbelieving neighbors. And we'll move on to encouragement number two. Encouragement number one, full knowledge that God's judgment will come. We are blessed that we know and that we can share these things with those who don't know. Encouragement number two, this is why we know and this is why we need to share. Encouragement number two, the inevitability of God's judgment on unbelievers. And again, Paul switches the pronoun here to they and them. He is not talking necessarily to unbelievers because he's really writing to the church at Thessalonica, but he's talking about unbelievers and what is awaiting them When the day of the Lord arrives. So verse 3, our first subheading is unprepared and underestimating. While they, unbelievers, are saying peace and safety. While they are saying peace and safety. This could have been almost like a Roman propaganda slogan. Have you ever heard of the phrase Pax Romana in Latin? It's like the peace of Rome. In certain times in the Roman Empire, there was just prosperity and peace and absence of conflict. This could have been almost like a slogan, a propaganda slogan of the empire. Or it literally could just refer to peace and harmony and welfare and absence of conflict that they may think they have as the day of the lord approaches <clears throat> this is a frequent promise or frequent refrain of false teachers and scoffers and mockers we look at in the back in the old testament in jeremiah chapter 8 Jeremiah is actually speaking the words of the Lord in Jeremiah 8 and 11. And he says, they heal the brokenness of the daughter of my, God's people, superficially, saying peace, peace, but there is no peace. Back to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. This time we'll roll back to verse 36. Matthew 24 verse 36 Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone for the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So in Noah's time, Noah's the preacher of righteousness, right? He's building the ark, getting ready for the flood, and everyone's just carrying on life as normal. They're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're getting married. They're not really worried that the flood's actually going to come. They're not taking it seriously. They're unprepared, and they are underestimating the Lord, and they are underestimating the message that Noah was carrying. One more passage that these kind of scoffers and mockers uh, highlights what they say, 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3 in verse 3, Peter says, "'Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming?' For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they, the mockers, maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So these mockers are basically saying nothing's changed since creation. Lie number one, we had the flood at least. And they're basically saying, where's the promise of his coming? This isn't really going to happen. And the reason they carry on like that is because they love their sin and they hate God. So they are under, unprepared and underestimating. In 1 Thessalonians, while they are saying peace and safety, while they are saying peace and safety, the inevitable happens. Continuing on in verse 3, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. The inevitable happens. While they're saying peace and safety, the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. Destruction comes upon them, not you all. It comes upon them suddenly, like a woman, like a labor pains upon a woman with child. Now, that word for destruction is very important. You know, many people believe that in, in annihilation, we do not. Jesus says in John chapter 5, there's a a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. Everybody is going to live forever. It just depends on where your final destination will be. Paul is using this word destruction to, in a sense, highlight not any kind of annihilation, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter one, you've probably just flipped the page of your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine, Paul is continuing to talk about what's going to happen at the day of the Lord. And in verse nine, referring to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's not annihilation. That's being eternally separated from God forever. That at least partially describes hell. This destruction is inevitable. It doesn't say it may come upon them. It will come upon them. And the illustration, Paul gives us an illustration here. He says, it will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. You know, a woman's pregnant. When the time comes, labor starts, the pain picks up. Yes, we have drugs today that can probably blunt some of that, but I don't think that's part of Paul's illustration here. There is always pain associated with childbirth. In fact, Jesus himself said, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. John 16, 21. The day of the Lord not only will be inevitable for unbelievers, it will be painful, like labor pains for a woman with child. The day of the Lord is going to come on them suddenly, and it's going to be painful, and it's inevitable. And Paul really cements this point home at the end of verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Not only were they unprepared and underestimating the message that we as believers can convey to them and that Paul, you know, through the day of the Lord teaching was conveying, the unbelievers were under, unprepared and underestimating that. The day of the Lord is inevitable and it's also unavoidable end of verse 3, once it comes, once it comes, they will not escape. For anyone who does not have a true saving relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm not trying to scare anybody. This is what the scripture says. But there's a terrifying reality ahead of you if you do not know Jesus. You know, looking back at that passage in 2 Thessalonians that I just read, to read the whole part from the middle of verse 7, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he, Jesus, comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. But there is still hope. Repent of your sins and turn turn in faith to Jesus because of who he is, the God-man reconciler and what he did for you on the cross. And be saved from this inevitable, unavoidable pain and ruin and eternal separation from God in hell that will come to all who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's the message we need to take to our neighbors who don't know the Lord. Maybe we want to be a little less scary in our first uh, encounter with them, but this is the truth. This is God's word. And the question is I've called this encouragement number two the inevitability of God's judgment on unbelievers. How is this an encouragement? This is when God's final judgment on sin and evil and unbelief becomes manifest at the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the start of God making all things eternally right, applying his justice. Answering the prayers of saints through redemptive history. I'm not going to read it, but in Jeremiah chapter 12, Jeremiah is praying that God's justice would come to the wicked who were prospering, and he literally prays that God would set them apart for a day of carnage. Not my words, Jeremiah's words, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And of course, we are all familiar with Revelation chapter 6, the martyred tribulation saints under the altar who are praying to the Lord, when, O Lord, will you avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? Be encouraged. God will judge the wicked. But as we sit here today, we should not get frustrated about the sin and evil in the world we need to let the Lord handle it. It's not that we ignore it or we, we, we like it or we tolerate it, but we can't let it just consume us and, and become an obsession. Look how bad the world is. We know the world is bad. God will handle it. It's only temporary. Be encouraged by that. And we can even pray that God's judgment would come, not in a mean way, but that God's holiness and righteousness and justice and sovereignty would be vindicated. So as we ponder the day of the Lord, we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, encouragement number one, full knowledge that God's judgment will come. And here, encouragement number two, the inevitability of God's judgment on unbelievers. Encouragement number three, and I do think this is actually a really good encouragement, the certain avoidance of God's judgment for believers. So back to 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul, in beginning in verse 4, changes the pronouns back to you all, speaking to the Thessalonian believers, and by extension, us. And in terms of the certain avoidance of God's judgment for unbelievers, our 1st subpoint is that there's just a different outcome, a different outcome. Let's look at verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. The outcome for believers and unbelievers on the day of the Lord is different in terms of their susceptibility to God's day of the Lord, wrath, and judgment. In verse 3, Paul has just gone through the wrath and destruction that will come upon unbelievers. And he starts verse 4 with, but, by way of contrast, but you all, brethren, are not in darkness. And the clear implication is that unbelievers are in darkness. They're unprepared. They're underestimating. They don't know the truth or they choose to ignore the truth and they're living their lives in sin. They're in darkness. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day, the day of the Lord, would overtake you like a thief. The day, is not going, the day of the Lord is not going to come upon you. It's not going to take place and directly affect you like it will unbelievers. You're not gonna be there for this unannounced, unexpected event. The Lord's gonna come and take you away in the rapture before that happens. You know, and like a thief, thieves operate in the darkness. And one needs to be in that darkness to be susceptible to the outcome in verse three that we just studied of the day of the Lord. You know, to be in darkness means you lack light, you lack truth, you lack a knowledge of God, you lack a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's who is going to experience the outcome of the day of the Lord judgment. But believers, verse four, Brethren, are not in darkness. We are not susceptible to being overtaken by the thief. We are not susceptible to judgment at the day of the Lord. Be encouraged by that. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. And why is there a different outcome for believers and unbelievers? Because believers have a different character or a different nature from unbelievers. And this is verse 5. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you, you all, are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Paul basically says, believers, you have a different outcome from unbelievers in terms of the day of the Lord, because you're just entirely different people by character and nature from those who will be subject to judgment at the day of the Lord. Paul says that because, for you all are all, not just, this is really by extension all of us, you are all, all of us, all believers are sons of light and sons of day, Now, that phrase sons of really means characterized by. You see it in Scripture a lot. It's characterized by. So believers are characterized by light, truth, relationship with God, saving relationship with Jesus. And the the day is just that part of the 24-hour rotational cycle of the earth when the light is there. So it's again, I said early on that Paul used rich imagery to highlight these differential impacts of the day of the Lord on believers and unbelievers, and it's like darkness versus light, night versus day. We are not of night or of darkness. We as believers are not characterized by that period of time of the day when it's dark we are not characterized by darkness. Darkness, you know, this is where when I mentioned Jonathan earlier. He teed this up very well this morning. Darkness is evil. It's a lack of truth. It's a lack of light. It's a lack of relationship with God. We have a different nature as Christians. I'm going to go back and read the passage that Jonathan preached to because I think it highlights it well. Colossians 1.13. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this dark and light motif is really consistent throughout scripture where believers are associated with light and unbelievers are associated with darkness. Bear with me just a couple passages to read to illustrate this. John chapter 3, this is where Jesus was uh, talking to Nicodemus, and right after he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A few verses later in John three nineteen, Jesus says, This is the judgment that the light, capital L meaning Jesus, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, rather than the Lord, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, hates the Lord, and does not come to the light, does not come to the Lord for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light comes to the Lord so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And one more brief passage from Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6 on this light and dark symbolizing believers and unbelievers really throughout scripture. Ephesians 5 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you, Ephesian church, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The bottom line is that believers are people, by the grace of God, are no longer in darkness. We're now in the light. We're characterized by light. We're characterized by day. We know God. We know the truth. We love Jesus. And we're prepared for what is coming. That is an encouragement. We have certain avoidance of God's judgment. Our brother Arnold will fill in a little bit more detail on the implications of believers being of light and of the day and not of night and of darkness next week. But what an encouragement And that is because we're of the light, we need to take that light and share it with our neighbors. So we have three encouraging characteristics related to the day of the Lord that Paul gives to the Thessalonian believers who were concerned that their loved ones who had died in Christ missed the rapture. And they were also concerned because of all that persecution they were experiencing that they were already in the day of the Lord. And these three encouraging characteristics related to the day of the Lord are, one, full knowledge that God's judgment will come. Two, the inevitability of God's judgment on unbelievers. And three, the certain avoidance of God's judgment for believers. I think that original title of the message, Encouragement and Warning, has probably uh, permeated through all of that. And just a few take-home lessons from this section of 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 5, before we close. I believe they're on your handout. And they're on the screen. Rejoice in the fact that we are in a church that has a high view of Scripture. We love the whole counsel of God. We teach the whole counsel of God, including eschatology. Pastor Tom is going through Revelation at night. I'm sure it's going to pick back up relatively quickly. And, um, you know, right in this area where, where the Lord's about to return. So it kind of fits in with exactly what we're talking about. Take home lesson number two. Trust that God will make all things right in his timing, and he will judge sin and evil. We're not the judges. Leave it to him. Third. Rejoice and give thanks and praise to the Lord because as a believer, there is no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. We are not going to be a part of this day of the Lord wrath that will come upon the earth. Praise the Lord. Four, As I said, that section of 1 Thessalonians that we covered today and next week are wedged between some some sections of 1 Thessalonians on sanctification. So focus on growing in likeness as the day draws near, as the time of Christ's return draws near. And lastly, share the truth that we know full well about what is coming from God with those who do not yet, hopefully yet, savingly know the Lord Jesus. So that's encouragement and warning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, a lot of heavy truth today. Lord, that is heavy truth from your word. And your word allows us to know full well what is coming. Lord, I pray that for anyone in here who does not already know you in a saving relationship, that you would use the truths of your word to convict them of their sin, maybe being underestimating of what you have said will come and that you will draw them to you so that they will be in a position where there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, for those of us who do know you, I pray that we would use what we learned today to sharpen what we might say to those around us who do not know you. Lord, help us to say it in a compassionate way. Help us to say it in a loving way, but help us to say it in a truthful way. Your word has hard truths in it and, and some very graphic truths in it, but Lord, it is your word and it is your truth. And Lord, also, not only should we share these things with our neighbors and friends and coworkers, but Lord, help us to use the fact that we don't know exactly when you're coming to strive for Christ-likeness now. Lord, it would be such a shame for you to return and we were in the midst of doing something we shouldn't be doing or in the midst of saying something we shouldn't be saying or in the midst of thinking something we shouldn't be thinking. Lord, help us to be clean when you return. Help us to repent of sin regularly so we're not carrying around a load of sin that we have not repented of. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. And I pray that your truth would do its work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.